0: On June 10, 2020, grassroots calls to defund the New York City Police Department, initiated in Minneapolis, Minnesota following the police murder of George Floyd, grew louder. That morning, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez explained why to Good Morning America co-host George Stephanopoulos. The NYPD's $6 billion budget dwarfed the funds set aside for all other city functions. That, she explained, was an imbalance that wealthy communities did not permit. And it was money that could be used to prevent crime.
1: In a lot of different places in in America, we experience very different realities with the police. Here in New York City, and I happen to represent the Bronx, I have Rikers Island here in my own district. And the New York City Police Department has a $6 billion a year budget that is more than we spend on youth housing, healthcare, and homelessness combined in New York City. And so the problem is not a lack of resources here. In fact, um, many folks here in our community say that the problem is the opposite, is that not enough resources are being put into the very kinds of social programming and investments that prevent uh, crime and social discord in the first place. And so what a lot of folks are talking about um, when it comes into this movement is that they're asking for the same budget priorities that many affluent suburbs already have. And it may sound strange, but um, many affluent suburbs have essentially already begun pursuing a defunding of the police in that they fund schools, they fund
0: housing, and they fund healthcare um, more as their number one priority. In other words, policy critics of the NYPD wanted to reduce interactions between the police and the poor, disproportionately people of color, by changing policies that put underserved New Yorkers under surveillance. They wanted to redirect these funds to the basic human services that house, feed, and care for Americans, and give them the training and education that create pathways to good jobs. But as Ocasio-Cortez went on to explain, defund the police, while the slogan might mean different things to different people, was not a path to eliminating or even shrinking the NYPD, but to reforming it. Specifically, she noted the funds spent on military-grade weapons acquired through the Department of Defense's 1033 surplus program and the budget for paramilitary NYPD tactical groups supplied with body armor, armored vehicles, assault rifles, bazookas, and small tanks. As an aside, the NYPD is also rumored to have an attack helicopter capable of shooting an airliner out of the sky in the event of another 9-11-style attack. Police recruitment advertisements and public relations videos paint a very different picture. In them, police officers who represent the hundreds of ethnic groups that live in New York extol the value of service, their dedication to community, and their desire to protect and serve all New Yorkers. In fact, both things are true. Police are violent, and they are useful allies. Police officers are authorized by the state to commit violent acts invade our homes, and use physical force and cause pain to assert their authority over civilians, whether those people have committed a crime or not. It is also true that police officers are embedded in New York's neighborhoods and communities. They are often familiar and recognizable figures who eat in our restaurants, watch over streets and subway platforms, give directions to strangers, and provide reassurance that New Yorkers will not become victims of random crimes." This paradox lies at the heart of the social relationship between police and citizens. While they are supposed to be the good guys who protect citizens from the bad guys, the ongoing tragedy of policing in the United States is fueled by the incidents, often fatal, in which these two categories become confused. Parents of black youth warn their children to never run in public, lest they be mistaken for criminals. Random drug searches concentrated in communities of color criminalize young people for simply hanging out. Peaceful, law-abiding citizens are subject to traffic stops and searches, and are sometimes brutalized or even killed if they do not comply meekly. It's unsurprising that racial prejudices that are widespread in the United States would infect policing too, but they have a particular implication for the relationship between state and citizen. While white people usually believe the police to be a benign presence, people of color know they could lose their dignity, their jobs, and their lives when stopped by a police officer. How did we get here? Perhaps a better question, I realized after reading historian Matthew Guariglia's Police and the Empire City, Race and the Origins of Modern Policing in New York, is, why are we still here? As Guariglia explains, the NYPD has not only always been violent— It has also been a racial project since the mid-19th century, when New York's political class saw a need to control the working-class immigrants pouring into the city from around the world. Initially drawing lessons from global imperial projects, New York's police force became professionalized under progressive reformer, police commissioner, and future president Teddy Roosevelt. But that is only a punctuation point in the NYPD's ongoing history of evolution and reform. At the center of this process are questions not so different from the ones reformers face today. How much violence is too much violence? What are the characteristics of a good cop? And how does that person establish authority? And most importantly, how do you spot a criminal before a crime happens? Join Matthew and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, professor of history emeritus at the New School for Social Research a contributing editor at Public Seminar and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 44, Inventing the Police. <music> your book police and the empire city race and the origins of modern policing in new york i just want to start by saying you obviously started writing this book well before a lot of the conversations that emerged about the police after the death of george floyd and black lives matter what motivated you to write the book
2: Well, I started researching the book several years ago, and I think it was two things simultaneously. The first was reading a lot about the history of governments in general and thinking about how governments learn about the people who live inside their jurisdictions and thinking about how sometimes when governments learn about different types of people, that knowledge that gets kind of crystallized and enshrined in filing cabinets and in policy often rife with stereotype and with negative assumptions about people. And as I was reading about the history of governments, also I was reacting to, in real time, protests around the killing of specifically Eric Garner and Staten Island. And these two things kind of merged to become the origins of this book.
0: And Eric Garner was a guy who was outside selling loose cigarettes and the police, white police, came and held him on the ground and ultimately suffocated him as he was trying to explain to them that he could not breathe. So that was actually a really critical moment, not just in terms of thinking about what police do and what is the knowledge that they bring to a seemingly random event, but it highlighted the racialization of these interactions. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners how race and ethnicity moved to the center of this book.
2: Race and ethnicity didn't so much move to the center of the book as I got into the archives and saw that there was no policing without consideration of race and ethnicity, that from the very invention of these you know, metropolitan urban police departments in the mid 19th century, you know, often brought over explicitly from the London style bobbies in the UK, that as soon as they arrived in the United States, they had a multiracial and multi-ethnic city to contend with. So questions about what ethnicities make the best police. Immediately, there was a multi-ethnic police force with Irish people and with German people and with Anglo people and Dutch people all over New York who became police officers. And people immediately had started to ask, do some ethnicities have a capacity for violence that is higher than others? And is that good for policing? Is that bad for policing? What does that mean for consideration of crime in the city? And so immediately upon the founding of the New York City Police Department, which in 1845 was known as the Municipal Police Department they immediately had to start thinking about race and ethnicity. And this becomes uh, even more complicated when you consider that a good portion of the nation still had race-based chattel slavery. And so when you think about the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, that if a self-emancipated person had fled slavery in the South and made their way to New York, suddenly it was the responsible of New York City Police Department to find them and return them often at the behest directly of Southern enslavers and the federal government. And so between considering ethnicity in the police department and crime on the street, and considering the intense amount of surveillance that black communities were under as soon as the police department were founded, you really have the origins of the police department that are totally inextractable from the history of race.
0: And you really show throughout the book how police departments over time, and the New York City Police Department in particular, takes on certain kinds of national responsibilities like the Fugitive Slave Act. It made me think a lot about the creation of anti-terrorism units in the New York City Police, which is a national agenda a federal responsibility, but then devolves to local police departments. I want to go back to something you were talking about, which is the people who are suited to be police. How is it that the Irish cop comes to stand in for policing in the late 19th century?
2: By the the mid-19th century, it has a lot to do with political corruption and voting, because you couldn't just apply to the police force. You had to be appointed, and the person who had the power to do that was your alderman, the elected official who was responsible for your district in the city. And so often in exchange for votes from your family, your neighborhood, your kinship network, uh, these aldermen would appoint somebody specific to the police department because it was a good job. It carried a lot of upward social and economic mobility, and it carried a lot of kind of racial mobility. It was a way to cast off your sense of foreignness if you were a recent immigrant by participating in government in the United States and in New York City. And so, in exchange for this massive and growing voting block, their votes for the Democratic Party, Democratic aldermen would give appointments to the police department to Irish people in exchange for their votes. And this created a police department that was disproportionately Irish that I think by the Civil War, by the 1860s, the police department was somewhere between you know, 40 and 60% Irish, which is incredibly large number at that time. And this made native-born Americans, kind of the Anglo-Dutch upper crust of New York City, very nervous because they thought that Irish people had a, a biological propensity for graft, for corruption, and for brutality which in some ways they thought made them bad police. And in some ways they thought made them very good police because a huge amount of policing in the 19th century was clubbing people, was maintaining order on the streets, maintaining kind of racial and gendered hierarchies exclusively through violence. And so in some ways, the upper crust of New York society was very skeptical of Irish police. And in other ways, they were very indebted to them for their ability, supposedly, to do violence on behalf of the state.
0: And Irish people are sort of seen in the mid 19th century as standing between real white people and black people. I mean, if you look at cartoons in popular magazines like Harper's and so on around the time of the Civil War, you often see black people being configured as ladies and gentlemen and Irish people being configured as sort of these monkey-like primitive creatures, and so Irish people are being, in some ways, they're the barrier between whiteness and the chaos of this potential multiracial city.
2: And unfortunately, you know, it, it appears that black communities in New York specifically are the anvil on which whiteness is forged. So. Irish people in New York can prove their whiteness by differentiating themselves from the Black community, either by refusing to work the same jobs that African Americans are working, by doing violence against those communities, either in uniform or not in uniform, and also by opposing emancipation. This is what the famous 1863 draft riot is about, in part is, you know, Irish people saying and being nervous in New York about emancipation, and about what millions of freed African Americans would mean for their status in society and their labor. And I think also some of these 19th century political cartoons kind of betray themselves a little bit that even though for the moment, Irish people are kind of betrayed as quite ape-like and not quite white, that... Opposing them in a lot of these political cartoons are the police, who are tall and blue uniforms. They look very kind of Anglo-Saxon. Their uniforms have not a single wrinkle on them. And yet, statistically speaking, a good portion of those police would have been Irish Catholic. And so there you have the uniform itself kind of creating whiteness around these Irish immigrants, even as the people they are fighting are depicted as incredibly different.
0: Right. And of course, the uniforms. And I think our listeners may or may not know that police didn't always wear uniforms. That's not something that is immediately done when police forces and constabulary units are established in cities. Part of police modernization is actually putting uniforms on police so that as agents of the state and the city, they are immediately identifiable as an authority. Can you talk about the uniform a little bit?
2: So before the 1845 municipal police force there's a kind of patchwork of of night watchmen and constables and and this is true of a lot of northeastern cities and even you know cities in in the rest of the United States moving out of the kind of early republic period and into this mid 19th century when London police becomes so in fashion what takes over is this thick blue wool uniform, which becomes so synonymous with policing and with representation of the United States, to the extent that even by the 1890s, when the United States starts to expand its overseas empire, including in tropical locations, the Havana Police Department, when it gets remade in the image of, in part, the New York City Police Department, they export those blue wool uniforms, which have no place in a tropical climate like Havana, and yet are so synonymous with order and the state and policing that they export them overseas as well.
0: And the late 19th century, of course, is a period in which the world is coming to New York in many, many ways. And by 1870, we see the beginning of what is going to be a mass immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it happens in phases. Irish people are the people who've been here for generations and now we've got Italians coming in we've got Chinese coming in we've got Jews coming in from Eastern Europe from multiple locations in Eastern Europe so what role are the police expected to play in managing this new population of workers I mean police
2: are are incredibly you know especially the NYPD administration are incredibly self-aware that they have an important role in making these people Americans. You know, they often say like New York City Police Department does more to make Americans than any other department of government. And it was about training people how to be American. And this is where I make an important distinction in the book between productive violence, inclusive violence and exclusive violence. Mm-hmm. That in European immigrant neighborhoods, when police hit people on the head, they often see their jobs as training them in the unofficial and official ways of being American. You are you are conditioning these people to behave like Americans, even with violence. And this is directly opposed from the kind of Exclusive violence that happens in black communities in New York and to some extent also kind of non-white immigrants like Chinese immigrants uh, in New York, where that violence is not trying to condition people to be Americans, but just to try to exclude them from the public sphere and from public amenities. So they really understood their role as a making Americans, as making citizens and making, making whiteness, teaching people how to behave like white Americans.
0: And it's not an easy job, is it? Talk to us about the normal day for a policeman in the late 19th century. What would that look like? Well,
2: I mean, it's interesting because in attempts to professionalize and standardize the police department and reform it and kind of drum out corruption and brutality, they ended up making a police department that was incredibly ill-equipped to police immigrant Mm. neighborhoods in a way that satisfied even them, because they were they, they thought, okay, if the gold standard for police are American-born officers who speak English, who maybe received more education than the rest, then we are going to tweak the civil service exam, which is the test you now had to take to get onto the police force. And if you tested higher, you got appointed. If you tested lower, you did not get on. They created this test to prefer... Uh, American-born officers who only spoke English. And what this created was an entire police force of people who did not really speak other languages, especially including Chinese, Italian, Russian, Yiddish, all of these languages that become incredibly important for the NYPD. So if you were an American-born officer who was assigned to the huge swaths of the city where you did not speak the language of the people you policed, oftentimes they were very confused. They had to go on like uh, a body of knowledge that was very much based on stereotype, which was very much based on what that community was willing to show you or not show you. And often it required a lot of trying to recruit informants and recruit people on the street to act as translators for you, which as you could read in the newspapers of the time, many people in the public sphere did not think that was very effective. There became this giant panic about immigrant crime based on the fact that police departments really did not really understand what was happening in these communities.
0: And of course, at this point in time, we have transportation systems that are starting to be built in order to get workers to their jobs. Anybody who looks at a map of Manhattan should know that there's a reason why Queens and Brooklyn were never really very well served. But Manhattan had dozens of train lines to get people around and horse cart lines. So immigrants can't be contained in their neighborhoods. They're moving all over the place. You need police supposedly to monitor that. But the police are also picking up a lot of information and bringing it back. And I think one of the things I loved about this book was the police, both as distributors of knowledge and collectors of knowledge, we rarely think of surveillance as sort of feeding back into general knowledge about new people in our midst. Can you talk about how police did that and how police departments actually process the knowledge that their officers were bringing in.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story. And this is part of the reason why when I talk about the book, I often say that, you know, to tell the story of policing New York, you have to kind of tell a global story. Because there's this entire body of knowledge that the New York City officers from beat cops on up to, you know, the NYPD commissioner at the moment are collecting from around the world. So, you know, you have things like the NYPD library, which gets started in the first decades of the 20th century, and it's filled with professors and eugenicists and criminal anthropologists, all these fields of study based in Europe that talk about the relationship between bodies and race and crime and and spell out very explicitly you know which races are more inclined to do murders versus to do theft and all this information is being collected and compiled by NYPD officers and made available for even rank and file officers through books through libraries through classroom training which becomes increasingly prevalent in the NYPD and and the other place you have all this knowledge coming from is from the US empire as you have a tremendous amount of officers, of administrators who serve in the army, who serve in the U.S. empire, in all sorts of administrative capacities, who see things like, you know, in the Philippines, how do American soldiers effectively police a very diverse archipelago of people who speak different languages from them and have different customs from them, and what works there and what doesn't, and how you can bring that back to New York to what they saw as a very similar situation of an American-born white officer in a neighborhood where they do not understand the culture, they don't understand the language, and what lessons can we learn from the Philippines and from Cuba. So you have officers who are themselves going out into the world and collecting knowledge. You have this huge amount of officers who are going to Europe and embedding themselves in the police departments of Rome and Berlin and London and Paris and seeing what they can learn and bring it back. And then you also have just information and books and academic knowledge, which also come back and kind of congeal in police departments.
0: Well, and ultimately, we see the rise in the late 19th century of something called professional policing. And now we're going to allow to enter one of my favorite historical figures ever, Teddy Roosevelt, who becomes the commissioner of police in New York City. And it's really his first big job in which he establishes a political profile. Can you talk a little bit about, first, why did Roosevelt want to be commissioner of police? And second, how is his period there a turning point for what policing becomes in New York?
2: Yeah, I mean, so Teddy Roosevelt had an unsuccessful run for mayor in 1886. He was kind of a a capital P progressive reformer. He really believed in the meritocracy, that no matter where you come from, people should be able to prove their worth and their value to society and be rewarded as such. He loses the mayor's race and he goes down to Washington where he starts to work for the the civil service section of the federal government, which is, you know, exactly what I was talking about earlier about, you know, having to take tests to see where and if you belong in fields of government. And this is supposed to cast off some of the the corruption that went along with being given appointments, being given lucrative government jobs based on who you know and, and you know what voting block you represent. And so it was his representation as a reformer and somebody who believed in the meritocracy that really kind of gave him his in to go back to New York and become the police commissioner in a time when the police department in New York had just undergone this massive investigation by the state government who found that from top to bottom, the entire department was corrupt. And they really needed some kind of new, very fiery reformer to come in and kind of drum out and straighten out this department. And so Roosevelt comes in as a a kind of staunch reformer. He's known as like a terror to rank-and-file officers. He used to walk around late at night to try to catch officers on the beat who were drunk or asleep. You know, the rank-and-file seemed to kind of hate him. But the other part of that story of Roosevelt that I think gets told a little bit less than you know Roosevelt the Reformer is that Roosevelt was also deeply invested in this idea of what ethnicities make the best officers. And in part, this was on a scale of Americanization. He said, you know, the Irish and the Germans are kind of the best officers in part because they've been in America for so long. They've done the job for so long. They know how to fight. They're tough. They have big, tall stature. And other races of people, more newly arrived immigrants, were less good at policing. And this is kind of rife with stereotype about, about stature, about size, about athletic ability. He said that, you know, kind of Jews and Russians and Italians are a little less good at being police officers, but maybe in time as they Americanize, they'll get better. At the bottom of the skull, he put Greeks, which for some reason he said that Greek people were very combative and wherever they were police officers, they fought with fellow officers. And so he really had this idea of a meritocracy, but one that was kind of infused with a person's body and a person's ethnicity.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that was very striking to me is we all know, or we who are historians know that ideas about race are bubbling up in the 19th century and they become codified around the time that Roosevelt becomes commissioner of police in New York City in scientific manuscripts and popular books and so on and so forth. But What we're also seeing with the police is that there are these different tendencies that are kind of fusing together without actually displacing each other. So on the one hand, you have the ethnic makeup of the police, you have the idea that police jobs can be sort of cultivated and handed down to the next generation and so but then you've got the civil service that puts a puts a kind of sheen on that then you've got the ideas about race that are melded into that and the idea that you can actually identify criminals before they commit crimes so you can actually look at a person and say that person is a criminal can you talk about that a little bit
2: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the really complicated things about studying the history of policing is that all of these ideas exist simultaneously all the time. I mean, you can open up newspapers in the late 19th and early 20th century and see a column saying, you know, the police have been too soft on criminals. They're not beating people up like they used to. They've got to start to beat people up. And the next page, see, you know, a huge story about police brutality and how it's out of control. And so all of these things kind of exist simultaneously in part because the, the political and intellectual endeavors of the upper echelon of the administration often does not penetrate into the rank and file. If there's something the history of policing shows us, it's that no matter what the political objectives are of a department, no matter what innovations there are, it's incredibly hard to change policing from the ground up because police on the ground, armed with a gun and a club and in the impunity to do what they want are gonna do what they want. And it's incredibly hard to build a system of accountability and of reform, and almost all attempts completely and utterly fail. So I think that's one thing that's complicated about this. But the other thing is that there is this 19th century idea that criminality is written on the body. That there are certain people, um, which you know, European scientists called born criminals, And you can tell by their face or by other aspects of their body that they are biologically predisposed to commit crimes. And the way they studied this is really interesting because it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you wanted to criminalize an entire race of people, which is, you know, in the 19th century, these scientists went into prisons in Europe. They measured the faces. They looked at all the faces of everybody in prison to find what's common about them. And so if you have people like, for instance, Southern Italians, who are already thought to be criminals, and are disproportionately surveilled and disproportionately arrested, and then you go into prison and you say, look at this, all of these people have something in common, they're criminals, therefore, uh, their biology must be partially to blame, then you have scientific proof that the people you already thought were criminals all along really are criminals in their DNA. Uh, And so this becomes a a really easy way to justify harassing and arresting entire races of people by pointing to a field of science that says, look, this science says that all these people are criminals, therefore we are justified in our harassment and our racism.
0: And of course, World War I really interrupts this in part because there's this mass recruitment of Americans into the army. And one of the things that recruiters find is that vast numbers of Americans are illiterate and that they're physically unfit and so on. This is very disturbing. And someone goes into a prison and does a study and they study the people in prison and they come out with the dismaying news that everybody in prison is actually smarter than the people that they're recruiting into the army, so that will change by the 1920s. And this book ends right before Prohibition, which I thought was awfully smart because a great many things change with with World War One and Prohibition. But why did you decide to end it there?
2: I think because in some ways, Prohibition in the 1920s marks the real consolidation of whiteness around all of these recently arrived european immigrants. So many things happen in those years leading up to prohibition in the 1920s where the panic around immigrant crime kind of slowly disappears and you have the hardening of the black white binary in terms of thinking about race where you know you have the americanization of all these people and so they are less unfamiliar to American-born police officers. Uh, More people speak English. There's more assimilation happening. Uh, You have immigration restrictions that are keeping out a tremendous number of Southern and Eastern European people to the United States. Uh, You have a mass deportation system that is removing immigrants now from the US if they supposedly commit crimes. So you have all these different new federal ways of addressing immigrant crime of which is also there's less of a need to address that because of assimilation. And then you have the emergence of really what I call technology-based policing, surveillance-based policing, where rather than have to rely on the inherent knowledge of immigrant officers to go into an Italian community, to speak Italian, to understand their culture, that gets replaced by things like the file and the filing cabinet and fingerprints, because you don't need to be able to speak to witnesses either because they can't speak English or because they don't trust police, because there's this chasm between communities and the police. If you can go to a crime scene and find a fingerprint even a month later, that you you begin to find technological ways to replace the human side of policing. And so it doesn't matter if the suspect you're looking for is only speaks Chinese and is in Chinatown and has the respect and the confidence of their neighbors enough to the point that they won't speak to the police about them. All of these things can be replaced by, you know, standardization and surveillance.
0: And of course, this brings us back to your global theme, because of course, the fingerprinting system that gets installed in the United States is French. A guy named Bertillon, who is the person who realizes that everybody's fingerprints are different, But before fingerprints are available, they also have other ways of identifying criminals that turn out not to be as exact. But why don't you tell our listeners about those?
2: So Bertillon, this French physician and academic, he develops this system for identifying people where they would measure different aspects of the body. So the length of a middle finger, the distance between your two eyes, the length of your ear, the length of your nose. And they would use that To create a filing system so that if you arrested somebody before and you found that they had a two inch nose you could go to the filing system you could pull up two inch noses and you could see if you know the person you'd arrested lit a fire. You could see if there were any arsonists who also had two inch noses. And this would be a way to find out if the person you had arrested had committed crimes before was a repeat offender. But this was an incredibly unreliable system in part because no two police officers measure the exact same way. Rulers could be off by a millimeter or two and that would mess up the whole system. And also because you needed an incredible amount of patience and cooperation to get a person to sit still long enough to measure the distance of their middle finger. And so the system was very popular, spread throughout the United States very quickly in the late 19th century, but was also pretty inaccurate and replaced very quickly as soon as fingerprinting became a viable technology.
0: There's one group of New Yorkers that doesn't break into policing really in the period you're looking at and that's black New Yorkers. Can you talk to our listeners about why that is?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's a really fascinating story especially in context with, you know, all these Italians and Germans and and Yiddish speakers getting incorporated onto the police force because the one group that they exclude until 1911 is black New Yorkers. Which is funny because black New Yorkers have engage in a decade-long campaign to desegregate the NYPD, in part because there's this real belief among a certain sect of politically engaged Black New Yorkers that a diverse police force will mean less brutality in Black neighborhoods, both because Black police will be more reluctant to beat people up randomly in Black neighborhoods, but also because there will be an inherent knowledge of the community, that Black police will know who the real troublemakers are versus who is just a pedestrian on the street, and will be able to target state violence toward where it is really needed in Black neighborhoods versus a kind of diffuse violence all over the place. And they followed the model of a lot of other cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Chicago, which had larger black populations than New York did and which had integrated their police force much earlier. And they also have these ethnic squads to point to. They have, you know, the first Italian detective, the first Jewish detective, the first Chinese-American detective. And they even call for at some point the appointment of a black Joseph Petrosino. And Joseph Petrosino was the first pioneer Italian detective on the police force. So they really understood the desegregation of the police force in context with all these immigrants who got their own squads to police their own neighborhoods. And like I said, it took a really dedicated campaign, and it took a lot, pulling a lot of political strings until a 1911 Samuel Battle becomes appointed the first black officer in the NYPD. And even once he's appointed to the force, because he is stationed in kind of majority black neighborhoods, he describes feeling like a translator and an interpreter for the all-white police force as well.
0: Matthew, we began with the police murder of Eric Garner and the ways in which that inspired you to learn more about the culture of policing and the far past of policing. Can you tell our listeners why they should read this book now? I mean, I think
2: there is a tendency to believe that because if you look all over the world, there are police departments and all of those police departments look relatively alike and act relatively the same all over, that this was a natural emergent in an industrialized society, the way people naturally organize themselves. And what I think this book really shows is that there was nothing natural about the modern police department, that it was built painstakingly, and it was a history of experimentation and failure and reinvention and re-justification over and over and over again, and that the primary function of it, even in its early days, was racial management and was management around gender and around sexuality. And I think that if you look at this past, if you read this book, you will see that there's nothing natural about the department. It was painstakingly built and built for a purpose. And no matter how much we look at the contemporary department and we say that it's colorblind, we say that there's no other way we can organize society, I hope this book really shows that that's not true, that like all other technologies, the police department is a technology that I think has generally failed at its purpose to produce safety for all, and that in the spirit of the history of the police department itself, that we as a society have a chance to try new things, to experiment with other ways of organizing society and other technologies of safety that are not This, this kind of antiquated piece of technology of the police department, which is 150 years old, and which has really failed to account for its history of racial management. It's failed to change enough to the point where it is sustainable in a modern society. And it has failed to produce safety in a holistic manner for all people.
0: And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or leave a comment. You can subscribe for free, or you can support my work for as little as $5 a month and get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And you can follow me on threads, Blue Sky, or Instagram. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.